and welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and I'm happy to welcome Blake McVeigh back as guest host of the program today. Blake is the Public Services Supervisor of the historic Cossett Library in downtown Memphis. Today is the first of a two-part interview with journalist and author Paul Kicks. Paul's journalism has appeared in many publications, including The Wall Street Journal, The Atlantic Monthly, and The New Yorker. His first book is The Saboteur, the aristocrat who became France's most daring anti-Nazi commando. And today, he and Blake will begin discussing his latest title, You Have to Be Prepared to Die Before You Can Begin to Live, 10 Weeks in Birmingham That Changed America, which is published by Celadon Books. Welcome, Paul, and thank you for giving us some time this morning. Oh, you're welcome. So, one of the most written about figures in American history is Martin Luther King Jr. And while this book is not specifically about him alone, he is one of, if not the main characters in the book. So, why another book about Martin Luther King? (laughs) I would argue that the book is much more about the movement of those 10 weeks than it is about King, who was leading the movement in those 10 weeks. Here's how I came to it. I'm white. My wife's black. Our three kids identify as black. After our twin boys in particular were born, I started to read a lot of the black canon, a lot more than I already had, and became almost singularly obsessed with the Birmingham campaign because it was not at all the way it was portrayed in those PBS documentaries that we'd all watched as kids about what happened, right? It was instead something where the SELC had failed miserably and for years prior to Birmingham. They, in essence, had no real success. You could argue that perhaps a Montgomery bus boycott was a success, but by 1963, people in Montgomery were riding in the black people. Montgomery were riding in the back of the bus, much as they had been in 1943, because the Klan was just intransigent in Montgomery. In addition to that, the SELC was completely broke by 1963. In addition to that, Birmingham was known as the most racist, most violent place in America. And in addition to all of that, even King himself said, as the leader of the SELC, we will either break segregation or be broken by it. Those were the stakes. They didn't know if the SELC would survive the Birmingham campaign. They didn't know if the civil rights movement would survive the Birmingham campaign. And one last thing about why a book about this now, if I could. Of course. This is a deeply personal story for me. I mentioned a minute ago how my own familial makeup, my ability to marry my wife, Sonia, in a former Jim Crow state like Texas, our ability to today raise our three kids on a street where no one harasses us for who we are. That all stems from the 10 weeks in the spring of 1963 and the Birmingham campaign. From 1863 to 1963, from Emancipation Proclamation until the spring of 1963, Citizenship in the United States was very much a caste system, and people like my eventual wife were not allowed to exist in the same quarters as I was. I was not allowed to to love somebody like Son. But because of what happened that spring, you see as a result of that, the Kennedy brothers sponsor civil rights legislation in June of 1963, where they say, but for Birmingham, we wouldn't be here today. That sponsorship becomes a Civil Rights Act of 1964. That becomes the the Voting Rights Act of 1965. That leads to King's death in 1968 and what I believe is a new life for his country. And it's not only 
the rise of the black middle and upper class. It's not only the presidency of Barack Obama, but it's my ability as a father to those three black kids to say, here, here is a story that you should read when you're doubting your own path in life, when you're unsure if you can be courageous, when you're unsure if kindness and ingenuity is the answer. And were it not for 1963, I don't know that America today would be what it is. So that's why I wrote this book. So it wouldn't be unfair to say that there is a direct line from the events during those 10 weeks to your personal life today. And everybody's life today. I mean, it's not just mine. It's the America of the 21st century is very much defined by those 10 weeks. And here's the thing. The question about why another book about Martin Luther King, I, again, I, I don't think it's necessarily a book about Martin Luther King. I think it's much more of a book about those movements. But the question is, is, is a good one because the civil rights canon is arguably the largest in American letters outside of perhaps the Civil War canon. And yet, and this was the shocking thing, when I committed myself to writing this book, I was thinking, surely there must be something that would have captured what I wanted to capture, which was, what was it actually like in Birmingham during those 10 weeks? In other words, a book that only focused on that campaign, the desperation with, with which King and the others went down there, the violence and brutality they encountered, the change they made. I didn't find that book. The civil rights canon is exhaustive, but almost always, in fact, always, Birmingham is treated as one episode in the course of many. And the point of you have to be prepared to die before you can begin to live is to say, no, 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 wait. Were it not for Birmingham, nothing else would have happened. That is pretty amazing that you weren't able to find any similar works, any any trailblazing. That was the shocking thing. Like, First off, you know, when you do a book like this, you sort of stand on the shoulders of giants, right? right. Like, so like Taylor Branch's Civil Rights Trilogy, amazing. Diane right. McWhorter, a native Birminghamian, she writes a book that I think in 2001 wins the Pulitzer Prize, Carry Me Home. It's about Birmingham, but it's about her experiences. It's about like sort of Birmingham as a city. It certainly touches on and spends a significant amount of time on the Birmingham campaign, but then it moves beyond it. And I'm not faulting it, right? Like, it's a great book. Right. I kept looking. That was the weird thing. I'm like, surely this obsession with mine with the Birmingham campaign, surely somebody else has had this before me. Like, surely somebody else has said, let's do a micro history that's just about this. And you don't find it. Even the PBS documentaries, they'll treat Birmingham alongside what happens either before or after it. Nothing about just this, what I, again, think is the most singular event of the 20th century, because it shaped everything that follows. Before we get into the actual content of the book, I want to talk a little bit about the style. I would call this narrative nonfiction. Yep. That made it a lot easier to read, but there were times, several times throughout the book, where I don't really know the building blocks of narrative nonfiction. And so I, I frequently wondered, what is the proper amount of license that is used or extrapolation that is acceptable with a narrative nonfiction, like times when you would talk about the inner thoughts of, of any one mm -hmm. in particular. So talk just a little bit about that process and how that works in narrative nonfiction. 
Well, I was blessed because, again, let's go back to the idea that kind of like the civil rights canon is perhaps the richest in all of American letters. As a result of that, you're, you're able to work with a lot of memoirs. Just to use the example of Coretta, she wrote two memoirs. She wrote over 700 pages about her life with Martin Luther King Jr. And in addition to that, she gave numerous interviews about her life with Martin Luther King Jr. So to talk about like her interior thoughts in the same way that I have access to Ralph Abernathy's interior thoughts or King's or James Bevel's or Wyatt Walker's, it is some confluence of memoirs they've written, interviews they've given, profiles that have been written about them that are sort of current to that time, right? And written in the 60s, say, or where they're recalling their own episodes a few years later. That's, that's how I use the material. The question about creative license, I mean, everything in that book is cited to a particular passage. Like, I think it has something like 1,500 separate endnotes, which you aren't going to find too many books that tend to have that, that are called narrative nonfiction. Most of the time you say, this is the sources that I used and sort of maybe a bibliography or whatnot. Mm -hmm. I decided to do it this way, kind of in some sense to anticipate the question that you're asking right now. How do we know this about people who are no longer alive? So I wanted to say, well, if you want to know, go to this book and look here, you know, within this, within this book for these sorts of passages. I don't really take creative license with the book. Everything in the book stems from something that somebody else said at the time, said later in an interview, or wrote after the fact in a memoir, and sometimes some combination thereof. It's not really a surprise to hear that explanation that you give, because the end notes are voluminous. Yeah. And uh, that... How many? I mean, it's like just as a page count, uh, like it's... I could do it real quick. My publisher was upset. She's like, are we really going to go with this many? I'm like, I kind of feel like we have to. Right. Um, the end notes begin on 317, and they go all the way to 365. So yeah. almost 50 pages of end notes. Yeah, yeah. So about a fifth of the book itself. Right. Is, yeah. And so really that makes it even more remarkable that you were able to take this wealth of information and distill it into a book. It was thorough, full of all kinds of information and facts and detail. I mean, it was a detailed book, but it was also very, very readable. Yeah, that's my hope. My sort of literary heroes are the people, frankly, that like, who are just a little bit older than me, right? Like what David Grant is doing right now with the books he's telling, he's very much a narrative nonfiction writer. Michael Lewis, very much a narrative nonfiction writer. Lauren Hillenbrand, with both of her books, very much narrative nonfiction. Those people are steeped in the sort of journalistic practices that I am too. And when I started to deal more with history, because this is actually, though I, you know, I work as a magazine journalist. This is actually the second work of history that I've written. Mm -hmm. I had in my mind Walter Isaacson. Walter said once in an interview that when he began to write biographies of dead people, right, be it Einstein or da Vinci, he would ask the same sort of questions of the source material that he used to ask sources themselves. Meaning, how did you know this? How did you come across this? How did this influence your life? Why? Right, Those sort of animating questions that get at character, that get at interiority, the dead people aren't going give, to give it up. <laughs> but what you can do is you can seek out the source material 
that might address those questions. And when I was working on my first book, and in particular working on this one, I had Walter Isaacson in my head. And so I'm treating the material a little bit differently than I am an historian. I enjoy reading exhaustive histories. Like sometimes those can be really, you know, engaging. But, you know, one of the things that you're kind of hinting at is it can be kind of a slog at times because you're like, oh, like a lot of times I'll skip through some. I'm like, I'm just I don't care about this chapter. Like get get to something (laughs) else that I care about. Right. But I didn't want to do that here because, again, that's not how I was trained. And I do want it to, to read well. I want it to read like a narrative, like the events that they were themselves. And so my, my training is a little bit different than a historian. In some academic, especially books from the academic presses that I would read about Birmingham, you see a lot of times the authors basically arguing in the pages with other authors about right. like, no, I'm right and they're wrong. It's like, oh, I don't care. But what you can do is then basically like hunt and peck for the little like nuggets that are golden and then say, oh, even though this is an argument, this is a great bit of anecdote that I can then use for my narrative purposes. You know, it just basically comes down to we have different aims in mind. So you took all of this information and revealed the really compelling story that unfolded in Birmingham in those 10 weeks. Yeah. Again, it's no different than what Hillenbrand did with Seabiscuit. Seabiscuit had been written about before. Mm-hmm. It's not really any different than like Eric Larson does a great job of this too, right? A lot of his books are material that's been covered endlessly before. You know, he wrote that book on Churchill. I learned so much about it. Talk about like a guy who's been overwritten, but that <laughs> book was great. That book was great because he, he had treated it like the journalist and the storyteller that Eric Larson is. That was his entry point to the material. He's like, I want to tell a story. I make it very clear with every book I write. I am here to tell a story. The story is going to be true, but I am here to tell a story. You say it in no uncertain terms several times through the book that Eugene Bull Connor was the perfect villain for the SCLC. He was like a comic book villain, and he really proved himself to be that at several points in time. Uh, Was there as much written about him as there was any of the other topics? Was it difficult to find any information on him? The biographies on Bull aren't as voluminous as, say, those on the SCLC or King or Coretta Scott King or Ralph Abernathy or anybody else. But they do exist in some of the academic press. And there it's more of a, it comes back to that idea I was talking about a minute ago. It's like a confluence of different sources, right? Like I'd pick up some from a documentary I mean, it was great. It was it was live footage of how Bull actually acted in Birmingham. Then I would set that against interviews with some of Bull's deputies from after the campaign. And I should say, like, before we go too much deeper with respect to sourcing or anything else, I owe a huge debt of gratitude to the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute and Birmingham Public Library, which over the last 30 years have assembled just a massive oral history campaign. Like basically everybody who had played any role of consequence in that spring was interviewed. And often with the intent of, we need to get to these people before they died. I spent, I can't tell you how, it was months just going over all of that stuff. And some of that stuff were some of Bull's deputies within the police department or people who knew Bull. So that stuff helped helped to really inform his character helped to really nuance him as a person. Yes, he is almost a comic book style villain. There's one part where I say that Bull was an almost quintessentially Birminghamian because 
Birmingham was such a, frankly, just like a, a poor place. I mean that quite literally. It was economically poor. Mountain Brook is very much the Tony suburb that just feasts upon Birmingham. And, you know, it had been extracted for its raw materials for decades. And so Bull was somebody who was like so many other white people in Birmingham, poor, white, angry that they were really no better off than their black counterparts, which really humiliated them, which really led, in my mind, to why the Clavern grew to such monstrous proportions and why the hatred in Birmingham was so vitriol, like even worse than other places in the Jim Crow South. So the, all of that influenced who Bull was. Could you call Bull Connor uh, an opportunist because he was a poor white guy? He just enriched himself kind of exploiting his peers to put himself at the top. Absolutely. The columns and news stories from those days, and those days are really like from the 1930s to 1960s. They appear predominantly in the Birmingham Post-Herald and Birmingham News. But you see Bull as this character who is very much a populist, very much likes the limelight, very much will say what is ever is necessary that is sort of incendiary and will get people to laugh alongside Bull or be angry alongside Bull. Bull was an opportunist. Absolutely he was. You know, I say in the book that he fashioned the police department in his own image, which is to say corrupt, white, and racist. But it seems perfect to bring up at this point that the SCLC, the leaders, they knew Bull very well, and they knew how to exploit those facts about Bull. You know, he sunk himself in a lot of ways toward the end, you know, toward the climax of this whole story. That was really the hope, right? That that's what would happen. Now, the book is really about the deputies beneath King. So that's Wyatt Walker, the then the executive director of the SCLC. That's James Bevel, who had a somewhat redundant title. He was the director of direct action. He was the operations guy. And then it was Fred Shuttlesworth, who I believe, like, I don't know if this is the case down in Memphis, but man, Fred Shuttlesworth should be as large an icon as the similar in the civil rights movement as John Lewis. Certainly, I mean, I would I could argue as, but he should be as big a figure as King. He's the most courageous American I have ever come across in my life. One of the most complex, too. But he's a Birmingham pastor who, years before the SELC went down there, was basically trying to do the work of trying to break segregation in the most segregated city of America. The threats against his life are just, my God. Fred Shuttlesworth is the third character. And there's, I mean, I focused on him not only because he, pl he plays an outsized role in that campaign, but because I really wanted to introduce readers to somebody who I just frankly became fascinated with. His story was really interesting, and it, it did make me wonder, just as you, why is he not more upheld as a hero of the movement? Yeah, so let's talk about that for a second. I mean, there's, there's ways to actually quantify this. So Fred Shuttlesworth had, in his fight for equality, was named in more cases that reached the Supreme Court than any other American in history, right? Fred Shuttlesworth... He endures bombing attacks on his home. And one time after a bombing attack, and that bomb set by the very likely set by the Klan in Birmingham and perhaps the cops working with them, it's set because Fred made it very clear to Bull Connor, I am going to try to integrate the bus lines tomorrow. And in response the night before, which was actually the night of Christmas, his home was bombed. 
The next day, like Fred survives this, somehow arises from the ruins of his home. And everybody's like, there's no way he's going to have the courage to actually go through. He does it the next day. People are like just amazed. We could honestly spend like 30 minutes just talking about Fred Shuttlesworth. But what I would rather people read about him uh, in the in the book. But to get back to your question, why is he not as well known? I thought about this a lot when I was writing it. I wonder if some of it isn't in a sort of almost an institutionalized racism in some way. What I mean by that is when the civil rights movement is happening, there is this sense that, okay, well, there will be like one sort of leader of black people, and that leader will represent the whole of the monolithic black America, right? And so that person becomes king. Not wrong for it to become king, but there are numerous fascinating characters who play just as central a role. And for a very long time, first by the press, and then for a while by historians or documentary filmmakers, those stories were sort of passed over so King could remain in the spotlight. The work of this book was to really show not only who these other characters are, but really the egos of all of these guys. Like I am fascinated as a writer by everybody's flaws. I think flaws are actually the things that end up really showing the features of who we are because it's through our flaws that we end up identifying with each other. So, which is a long way to say that all of these guys had massive, massive egos. You know, the line that they used in the SCLC was everybody who was leading that movement that spring, they could still kneel before God, but they would, by God, stand mighty tall before each other. <laughs> and I wanted to have those fights play out. Like, for instance, Wyatt Walker hated James Bevel. James Bevel was a young guy. Wyatt Walker was the authority within the SCLC, literally the executive director. A northerner. A northerner, yeah. It cuts us upon class lines. Like Wyatt Walker's dad not only spoke, but read every day in Hebrew and Greek. And James Bevel comes from a farm in Itabina, Mississippi, where his dad had like a, I think a sixth or seventh grade education. That's not to say his dad was uneducated. In fact, I would argue he was an autodidact. But in any case, another class disparity and another point of tension within the SCLC. Fred Shuttlesworth, country preacher. I grew up on a farm in Iowa that raised hogs. And I tell you what, I identified with Fred Shuttlesworth more than anybody else in that book. Because guess what? Fred Shuttlesworth grew up on a farm that raised hogs in rural most <laughs> Alabama. Right? And he is the exact opposite of the bougie... Tony, way upper class Martin Luther King, right? A guy who's so upper class, he actually kind of is really feels guilty about all he was given as a child. And I wanted to make that point clear too. But those those class distinctions play out later on in the book. Wyatt Walker says at some one point, the upper black middle class in Birmingham, they didn't want to side with Fred Shuttlesworth. He's some poor ass country preacher, right? Like they want to go with King. Everything that happens today in every facet of every society, that stuff was playing out in Birmingham. And I wanted to spend time exploring that to kind of make it come alive. Would you say that, you know, in the discussion of all of these very important figures that and discussing the whole class issue, that one of the biggest reasons why MLK is so upheld today is because he was easier to clean up than these country preachers or these Humble yeah. eccentrics. Or, yeah, humble eccentric like James Bevel, or like even somebody like Wyatt Walker, who is brilliant. King even says he's probably like the keenest mind in the movement, but he's immoral. You know, if you get to Double D Day, 
and you see the reason that some of those dogs were actually attacking. And you're like, whoa, that had something to do with Wyatt Walker. And you're like, okay, you see the complexity of it's like, I don't want to give it away. But what I will say is Wyatt Walker made it very clear. The quote is in the book, but very sort of closely paraphrase it. It's something like, I have no problem altering my morality if it means that we will win. That was Wyatt Walker, who King chose as the executive director of the SCLC, right? Yeah. He's like a bare knuckled dude. I wanted all of his complexities to be relayed too. But to get back to your point, yeah, I mean, King has his own nuances too, but he is the most, I would say, behaviorally consistent. <laughs> you know, um, his rhetoric can be really soaring. And so a lot of journalists or writers or whoever it really gravitates to that for good reason. But again, he is not the only reason they win. And I would even argue he is not the reason they win in Birmingham. It's actually the deputies that do the majority of the work so that the Birmingham campaign could succeed. The SCLC was getting desperate and they were pouring everything into what was initially Project X, eventually turned to Project C because Birmingham was seen as like the belly of the beast when it comes yeah. to segregation and, and racism. They kept banging their heads against a brick wall. This thing really evolved over the 10 weeks that by the time it came to its end, the project looked pretty drastically different than what they initially planned. I think this is one of those things where it's like, like I wrote the book as a guide for my three kids and how to live, but it's really a guide for anybody and how to sort of, how to like approach life. I just think it's, that's true because basically if you take what happens in Savannah, Wyatt Walker puts in place this like amazing memo. That's just basically like, here's a four stage plan of escalation. He kept saying everything must escalate in Birmingham. Everything must get progressively worse in Birmingham. And he lays it out and he does all this work in the months between January when he lays out the memo and April when they go to Birmingham to like sort of further support the cause of the memo. They get to Birmingham and basically everything goes to crap. And for me, how that's a guide to life is really that like your grand plan is never the final plan. They almost immediately have to start improvising. How can we make this work? Because comic book villain that he is, Bull Connor initially was smart enough to realize that, oh, if he treated these kneeling black pastors at his feet with kindness and just sort of carefully, gently arrested them, well, then they wouldn't be able to sort of like show the waiting press corps how violent Bull could be. And so the early part of that campaign, I love that. It doesn't get a ton of attention in other works. And I wanted to focus on it because it really became a cat and mouse game. It's like, how can we incite Bull to do what we know is within his nature? And Wyatt Walker develops this, again, brilliant idea that works until it doesn't. And then James Bevel, his like arch nemesis, comes up with an even bolder plan, which everybody hated because it was just like, this is bonkers crazy. And I mean, and since it's part of a historical record, I can say it, but it's like James Bevel was convinced that the reason that there were very few people who wanted to protest alongside the SELC was not necessarily because Birminghamians were afraid. It was instead the belief that Birmingham adults would be fired by their white bosses for protesting, which was true. And so James Bevel's idea was, well, let's not use the parents. 
let's use their kids. This was a city where the Klan castrated black men. This was a city where cops raped black women in their patrol cars. This was a city where CBS's Edward R. Murrow, when he visited Birmingham just prior to King and the Campaign, he turned to his producer at the end of his trip and he said, I have not seen any place like this since Nazi Germany, right? That's Birmingham, Alabama in the spring of 1963. And so for James Bevel to say, I think we should use kids, everyone's like, no, absolutely not. But then they had to, because they had no other option. Paul Kicks is the author of You Have to Be Prepared to Die Before You Can Begin to Live, 10 Weeks in Birmingham That Changed America, which is published by Celadon Books. Come back next time as he and Blake McVeigh conclude their two-part discussion. I'm Stephen Ussery, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is produced in the studios of FM 89.3 WYPL Memphis, a service of the Memphis Public Library, a division of the City of Memphis. Book Talk is copyrighted by the Memphis Public Library, all rights reserved.